Hello, everybody. Have you ever reached out to a traditional recruiting agency to try to fill a role and then been shocked when you found out that they charge up to 30% of a first year salary? That could be $50,000 or way more. That's so unaffordable for an early brand. But there's great news. I am thrilled to announce that Startup CPG now has an official recruiting partner that I think is the best fit for emerging brands. They are called Creative Alignment. They're a top-tier recruiter, and the best thing is that they work on an hourly model called time-based recruiting. Often, you could fill a position with them for just 10 to 12% of a first-year salary, and if you work with them on multiple roles, you could save even more. They've worked with RX Bar, Cauli Power, Kodiak Cakes, Olipop, and so many other brands, and they are extremely well-regarded within our Startup CPG Slack community. So if you're considering hiring, I really recommend reaching out to them for a free consultation. You can visit their website at creativealignments.com or email them directly. Our contact is frank.milianti, that's M-I-L-I-A-N-T-I, at creativealignments.com. Anyone who's going to be out there promoting your product needs to know what are the safe grounds that we can talk about and what do we need to stay away from. And that should be informed by regulatory compliance. It should be informed by litigation risk and informed by what you can actually substantiate. So those guidelines should be out there. Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. I am your host, Daniel Scharf. On today's episode, we interview top food lawyer Lauren Handel, the principal at Handel Food Law. Lauren has a lifetime of experience helping brands with legal challenges, and I'd asked her to bring a list of the most common lawsuits that emerging brands are facing these days. This may not be the most fun episode you ever hear from us, but it is one of the most important. I hope you get a lot out of it. I certainly did. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Startup CPG podcast. So today we're joined by Lauren Handel from Handel Food Law. Lauren specializes in food, beverage, and supplement businesses. She's got a rich background from McDermott, Will & Emery, LLP, and she brings over two decades of experience, having now transitioned her skills to advocate for independent businesses. One of the hot topics in the industry has been the volume of lawsuits against emerging brands, areas like labeling, disability compliance, and much more. Lauren's seen it all, and I've worked with her personally on one of these kinds of suits, so I was really eager to get her here on the podcast to give all of the brands out there a rundown of key areas where claims are being made these days and what you can do to try to avoid them. Lauren, welcome to the show. Can we just jump right in? And I'd love to ask you to tell us what got you interested in this world of CPG. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be able to talk about this stuff. What got me interested? So you mentioned I had a previous life at a big firm where I did pretty much only litigation. It was different kind of litigation, mostly representing really large companies. Litigation meaning like in the courtroom, like law and order style. Not nearly as dramatic or exciting. Big cases that went on for months and months and months and very big companies. And it was great experience for me as a lawyer. I really like learned how to a lawyer and honed skills, but I wasn't in love with what I was doing. And I had a personal, very strong interest in food, both as somebody who likes to eat and cook and go to restaurants and learn about culture through food, but also became really interested in the food movement, as it's sometimes called, of like all of the businesses 
and organizations that are out there trying to improve our food systems by offering better, healthier, more environmentally sustainable options that kind of disrupt the existing food system. And I was really interested in that and figured out that there was a role for lawyers to play in that. And so that's why I left my old firm and actually went and studied to focus on food and agriculture law and started my own. Yeah. And pretty interesting that you say like the role for lawyers to play, which I mean, unfortunately, is a big role and probably an increasingly big role keeps growing, just, you know, especially all the new brands. For me, it feels like if you start a brand these days, it's not if, but when you're going to face some kind of a claim or suit. So it is very good to know a good lawyer. So I'm really happy to have you on here to talk about some of this stuff. But hopefully after we drop all of these tips and knowledge from your experience, everybody will just get right and no one's going to have any claims. Yeah, that's the goal. I mean, the goal is always prevention, right? So yeah. that's mostly the role that I play. All right. So what I had asked Lauren, because she's done so much of this and she's working across all the brands and seeing everything right now, I said, hey, can you just bring a list of what is the stuff that you're seeing the most out there? What are when you get this horrible letter that appears on your doorstep someday about a claim that's coming, what's that most likely to be right now? And, you know, what can brands do about it? So, you know, I think before we jump into the most common claims, can you just tell me a little bit about litigation risk generally? So like, where is it coming from? And, you know, how common is it? Yeah, sure. So this is a very litigious society that we're in. And our system in the United States makes it pretty easy to sue and expensive to defend. So like it or not, and there are good things about that for sure, but it also creates an environment where there is money to be made on the plaintiff's side, especially for plaintiff's lawyers who bring class actions, meaning a lawsuit where there is a plaintiff, one or maybe two, maybe three people who are named plaintiffs, but they're there to represent in in my experience, the kinds of cases I'm dealing with, all consumers of a particular product that might be in a state or it might be nationwide or in several states. And that type of litigation can be very lucrative for plaintiff's lawyers because while the damages to any particular claimant, the person who bought a product might be pretty small over the whole class of everyone who's bought that product over the course of several years, the numbers get pretty high. And there are also state laws that make those types of lawsuits favorable for plaintiff's lawyers to bring because they allow for awards of attorney's fees in many cases, which is not the norm in our society. So usually each party pays their own way, which is what makes it difficult and expensive to defend against these kinds of lawsuits. So that's just kind of like the overall dynamic and the incentives at play. And so there is very active litigation in the food space and CPG more broadly. For the last 10 to 15 years, the area of food labeling litigation has become a really hot area of class action litigation. But there can be other kinds of lawsuits too. Uh, Competitors can sue each other over their labeling and advertising. That's less common. And there's also an alternative way that those sorts of claims can be brought outside of the courts in in a more private way in the National Advertising Division, which is part of the Better Business Bureau. So there are different ways that these issues could come up, but by far the class action model labeling litigation where the allegations is that there's something false or misleading about a label is the most popular kind of claim right now. 
it seems like there are probably a couple ways that suit could come about or a claim could come about. Like you could have a consumer out there who finds your products and feels like they've somehow been deceived or wronged by your product and they go out and find a lawyer to represent them like a highway billboard. Like, have you been targeted by the whatever? And then they could find a lawyer who would then get in touch with you. And then another that I also have heard of is there are law firms out there, you know, and I live in California and there's a lot of that happening here where they have pretty strict um, consumer protection laws, where it's a law firm that they see a lawsuit that's out there about a specific thing. And then they know that's a hot button right now that there's some money in it. And they may go and just kind of search the market for somebody that might also be committing a similar kind of infraction and then actually go out and find people who want to complain about it, like even using things like Instagram to say like, hey, have you bought this product? Great. Do you want to sue them with us and maybe you know find one person or put that together even potentially as a class action? Is that right? And are there any other ways? Yeah. Yeah. So with the labeling and advertising type litigation, it is largely driven by the plaintiff's lawyers and not by the consumer who feels wronged. So it is very much the case that there's a set of plaintiff's law firms that are focused on this type of litigation. They identify particular issues that they want to target and then go out and find all the products that they can that have this issue or that present this issue where they would have a potential claim and then go out and find the plaintiffs to be the named plaintiff on the complaint. So yes, but I've also seen the other. It is less common, but I have had experience with clients where there actually was a plaintiff who felt wronged by something who went out and found the lawyer. And then you're in a very different situation where you're dealing with a plaintiff who really feels like some injustice has been done. And that's different than the kind of business of class action plaintiff's lawyers. Yeah. So in that instance, so what's the process like, you know, that happens? Okay. So let's say somebody finds a lawyer and now they're going to get in touch or the plaintiff's lawyers then finally find the person to bring a suit. You know, what's going to happen after that? If you're a brand waiting for the shoe to drop on this one, what's your experience going to be like? So you might get a letter you mentioned, and that's because under certain statutes, it's required for the plaintiff to send a pre-suit notice letter. And the idea of that is it gives the defendant a chance to make a correction and resolve the issue before it actually ends up in court. So often that will happen, that there is letter saying, and might even have a draft complaint attached, saying, we're going to sue for this reason, I represent such a party, and you have so many days to respond to this before we file suit. Sometimes you'll just get served with a lawsuit or find out that a lawsuit has already been filed. And so that's just kind of a strategy decision in states where the underlying cause of action doesn't require a pre-suit notice letter. The plaintiffs might decide to just go ahead and sue. So that, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So I just assumed like, hey, they're all just going to reach out to you and try to get you to send them a check for as much money as possible and not actually go through with it. But you're saying, no, actually, a lot of times they'll just go ahead and file it, which you as a brand is the thing that you don't want to happen, probably, which is why you might settle in a lot of instances. But you're, how common is that? Or where would you see that more likely to happen where they're just filing it instead of actually reaching out to you to try to settle it before doing that? Yeah. So the pre-suit notice letter is definitely more common for labeling cases. I think we're going to talk a little bit about the website, ADA compliance kinds of cases. Those are tend to be, it just gets filed and defendant finds out, usually because some other defense firm is monitoring the dockets of the courts where these cases are common and reach out to them and say, you've been sued. You might not have been served yet, but you've been sued. 
for your website. So it just depends on the nature of the action. From the plaintiff's standpoint, they might have a strategic reason to just go ahead and file and try to be, especially if they think it's an issue. Like we've been talking so far mostly about these consumer protection kinds of cases involving false or misleading or allegedly false or misleading labeling. If it's a different kind of issue, like it's being prompted by an FDA warning letter or it's being prompted by a recall Plaintiff's lawyers will want to be the first to file a case so that they can control over it. So if they think it's an issue that's public enough and other lawyers might be sort of jumping on filing their own cases, they'll want to get out there first to be. And then if it, if they want to spin it into a class action, it's sort of the balls in their court. No pun intended. Yes, pun intended. All right. <laughs> Sorry in advance if I do a couple more of those. Here we go. So then let's say you get a letter, let's say then, and it's a pre-suit notice and they say all the things that you've done wrong and how the person who is suing you has been wronged by them. And, you know, what are they going to be looking for at that point? Like what's you're expected, obviously, to respond to them? What are brands typically doing in that situation? And how quickly is it going to get to a dollar amount discussion? So it really depends on who you are as a brand, right? So this is the Startup CPG podcast. We are focused on emerging early stage companies, right? Companies that tend to be smaller. And that is a different kind of analysis and strategy than if you are an established, bigger brand, deeper pockets. At some point, things change from we're trying to settle this as quickly and cheaply as possible. And especially if it pre-suit where it can still be confidential, there's no, pu- once a lawsuit is filed, the complaint's been filed in court, that becomes a public record. And so other lawyers in other parts of the country might find out about it and get the same idea, right? So there are advantages to having a confidential early settlement for relatively cheap. And they could talk about what I mean by relatively, if you're a smaller brand. If you are a bigger company, you don't want a reputation for settling an early, right? So you get to a certain size and you really have to fight back, especially since on the merits, many of these cases are defensive and are very difficult for the plaintiffs to prove. And there's actually not many that ever get to any sort of decision on the merit. So there's a, a different set of incentives depending on, on your size. But if you're smaller, you get that letter. You have an incentive to at least find out if the plaintiff's lawyers are talking about reasonable numbers, because what you're looking at is the cost of defending. Even if you have a winning case, even if you could ultimately prevail in the litigation, what is it going to cost you to get to that point? What is it going to cost to get to that point? It could easily cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? If you were going to have to go through full-blown litigation, which in a class action is complicated, is more complicated than the single plaintiff case because you have class action, class discovery in figuring out and a whole stage of the lawsuit and figuring out if a class can be certified, which is often where these cases are won or lost, because if the plaintiff can get a class certified, now those damages and numbers have gone from maybe a few dollars to maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars. So that various stages where there's important fight and legal work is resource intensive and expensive. Even if you're a small brand, is any suit going to cost you that kind of money if you actually take it to court? Or or how much could a, if they don't get a class action certified, how much could a smaller suit run you? Is it going to be 10,000 bucks? Is it going to be 100,000 bucks? So each case has to be evaluated on the specific facts of that case. It is 
very easy to state enough of a claim to draft a complaint as the plaintiff that is good enough in our system and with the standards that we have for just initiating litigation to get past the motion to dismiss, which is the first opportunity when you're served with a complaint, you can either answer the complaint where you admit or deny the allegation or you move to dismiss. And it is the relatively rare complaint that is really vulnerable on a motion to dismiss where you could actually just get the whole thing wiped out. Now, that has happened, though, in this type of litigation. And you know, there's a particular type of case which we might talk about that more and more of them are getting dismissed. So you would really need to evaluate, do we have a potential to actually get this knocked out early. But if not, and in most cases you don't, because usually some part of the lawsuit, even if you could get some of the claims narrowed or some of them dismissed, some part of it will continue. And then the next stage is discovery, which gets really expensive. So just to deal with the motion to dismiss, I'd say $10,000 would be not impossible, but still cheap, that you'd probably be looking at closer to twenty dollars or $30,000 in legal fees to get through the briefing on it, the argument on it. And then you'll have to see how successful were you. And kind of the longer the litigation goes on, the more work that is done on both sides, the more expensive it becomes to settle too. So again, this all goes back to incentives to try to settle early. Yeah. Hey, here's a dumb question. Do you as a lawyer like keep track of your record like a boxer would, like how many wins and losses and knockouts, which I think would be early dismissals? I would if I was still litigating like that, right? So since I started this practice focused on food businesses, I actually have had one case that I've litigated and we went all the way through trial. It was not a labeling lawsuit. I actually represented the plaintiff and we won. In my practice now, what I'm mostly focused on is preventing people from getting these. And then when they do get this letter or a complaint filed against them, seeing if we can resolve it with an early settlement. And if not, then I probably would not stay involved for the lady. Okay, got it. Um, all right. So you respond to them and you say, okay, like, you know, we see your claim and to us is not valid for a bunch of reasons, but hey, what's the number you guys are looking for in some way? What should you expect back from them at that, at that point? Yeah. So it depends on who you're dealing with. I'd say from my experience, the plaintiff's lawyers that tend to be sending these kinds of letters and threatening these kinds of lawsuits against really small brands know exactly what they're doing, know that they are targeting very small brands who aren't going to have a lot of money and are deliberately choosing to target those kinds of brands knowing the incentives that we've been talking about, they're not expecting huge amounts of money. They might ask for huge amounts of money initially, but they're not expecting huge amounts of money. Like I'm talking in a neighborhood of ten dollars to $40,000, $50,000, which still sounds like a lot. You mean that's what they expect or that's what they'd ask for? No, they might ask for way more. than They will almost certainly ask initially for way more than that. But what they would expect to get, you know, it's going to depend partly on sales. And usually these conversations start with some giving the plaintiff's lawyer some idea of what the brand sales are so they can see sort of what they could potentially recover and hopefully use that to adjust their expectations. But what they would end up taking is they understand this is about avoiding defense costs and they may have other cases against much bigger companies. But they send out enough of these sort of demands to fund their practice while they're engaging in the longer litigation against the big companies that fight back. Okay, got it. And so, I mean, 
it sounds like they may initially give you some very ridiculous number. Like maybe you gave them some information and they'll say, okay, great. Like give us the full value of your company and that'll be it for this grave injustice of the person who found a problem. And then you might go back and give them a really, really low number in response. It sounds like I think to kind of like when someone anchors you high, I think business school negotiations professors would say immediately then counter very low. Right. So they could come in and say, great, we want hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you might go back and say, what could you respond with at that point? I mean, really anything. It's all about gauging whether or not you're going to be so offensive that they just end the conversation. And it really does depend on who you're dealing with. So it is possible that the plaintiff's side is what I call a true believer. Right. So there are plaintiff's rooms out there that are doing this, not just to go after as many people as they can to make us with money, but because they actually have a cause that they are trying to advance. And it will be much harder to settle with them. But assuming this is more of the sort of mass, find as many of these kinds of cases as we can that are about relatively minor issues, you could start the negotiation with $500, $1,000, $2,000. Okay, got it. So probably over a couple of rounds of negotiations that will feel horrifying for a brand, you might settle in that range of what they were kind of looking for initially, and they will be maybe, you know, very unhappy with it. You'll be unhappy with it and everyone will walk away unhappy, but, you know, somebody will get some money out of it. And a plaintiff in that case, I mean, what percent of the settlement would they actually be receiving? I know it's going to depend on lawyer hours, but I mean, it could end up being a pretty small percentage, right? Like five, 10, 20%, something like that. Yeah, they're definitely not getting most of it. And it's an important thing to point out, too, that what we're talking about, this sort of if this is a class action or it's a, a putative class action, and you're talking about this early settlement before the lawsuit is filed, you're talking about settling only with that individual plaintiff. And there are risks to that. So you are not going to get a settlement that means you can't get sued for this again, which you could get if you could litigate enough to get settlement approved on a class-wide basis. That has to be approved by the court. And so it's expensive to do that. So it'll only be in a case where financially it makes sense to an individual settlement. And that plaintiff, sometimes when these are done, the brand won't know what the allocation is to the named plaintiff. But I've seen where they maybe get, let's say there's a settlement for $10,000 and the named plaintiff maybe gets $1,000 at that. And we will be right back. Hey listeners, are you working on your email and SMS marketing strategy and not getting the results you're looking for? Or do you wish you had a little more time and a lot more resources? Don't worry, Strategy Maven has your back. Building a successful strategy is no easy task, but their mavens or experts will help you establish an email and SMS marketing program that will attract, engage, and retain customers to help grow your brand. SMA is a perfect partner for you if you're not getting the results you're looking for, or your overall email attributed revenue is less than 30%, or you have way too much on your plate and not enough resources, or you started with another agency or freelancer and they dropped the ball. Strategy Maven Agency treats your brand as if it was their own. They provide the expertise and support your business needs to scale and thrive. Visit strategymavenagency.com to get started with a free consultation and don't forget to mention Startup CPG. And now back to the show. And so what you're saying, what you just said is that if you just settle this pre-suit thing that you've gotten a letter for and end up, you know, paying them 10,000 bucks, somebody else 
just can pop out of the blue. Another law firm send you the same letter and you have absolutely no different, nothing defensible. Like, oh, we already paid this other guy, though. Like, no, no. They're like, great. Then you pay us that also, right? Whereas if you actually fight the thing and win, then that would give you the defense. Or if you're expecting a ton of these, then maybe you actually do want the, if they are going to come at the same time, you might even need that kind of a class action structure to be able to kind of fight all of them once and for all, maybe. Yeah. So it's possible even where you've decided you're trying to settle this and you're basically then working with the plaintiff's lawyers, if there's enough risk of other follow-on lawsuits that you would want to settle on a class-wide basis, but you can't just decide between the parties to do that because there's other people's interests who are involved. So the court has to approve it. So there's some amount of uh, discovery and briefing that has to happen to show the court that the requirements for class certification are met. And it's a looser standard than if you were doing it for purposes of proceeding to trial. But there's the court still does have to scrutinize it. So if the dollar amount is high enough and the risk is high enough, it makes sense to do that, especially if it's already public. This is a case that started with a public issue or because the complaint was actually filed. And there's the potential for other lawsuits in other jurisdictions because, yes, settling with the one plaintiff does not give you any defense against somebody else who happens to come up with the same idea sitting in another place or even in the same place. So if a suit can claim that they are affecting a change, right, like making you actually change something about your product or label to solve this issue, they can go after more money from a brand, right? Whereas like if it's something that maybe you actually already discovered on your own about your packaging and have kind of in progress to fix already in the market, does that impact the dollar amount or you know what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so under California law specifically, there is a potential for recovery of attorney's fees on the plaintiff side if they've won something. And so it can be that. It can be having caused a change that was beneficial to consumers. That's not necessarily the case under all states' laws. So under other state laws, there can be a right to, to attorney's fees. It's always in the discretion of the court, but you don't necessarily have to show the same sort of change. Okay. But if you're in California and you do get sued by somebody, you should know that plaintiff's attorney, that law firm that may have even been the ones who brought the case, if you've already fixed the thing that they're trying to get you to change, that may actually impact their ability to then include their fees in a suit if it actually goes to court, which probably is actually a big deal for them. I mean, it's almost always going to be in the brand's interest. Assuming the plaintiffs have identified an issue that is a real issue, that is something that is at least enough of an issue that there's a viable claim and therefore puts the brand at risk. It's almost always going to be in their interest to fix that issue as soon as For sure. Yes. And, you know, obviously we would both advocate that brands really understand all of the regulatory guidelines around all of these different areas and, you know, really do their best to abide by them. Of course, sometimes there are things you might miss, you might not know something about one of your ingredients, whether intentional or not, it can happen. So without further ado, let's jump into some of these hot areas in suits and litigation right now, things that are showing up on brand stores, door, brand doorsteps a lot. So the first one that I think we were going to cover is around false or deceptive labeling and advertising class actions. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what are the most common ones that you see out there? Yeah, so there's been several issues that kind of come up over and over and over again. 
And really this type of litigation started, has remained a hot area with claims about products being natural. So uh, you see less of that because it has been such a litigation target in the marketplace, people using that terminology less, but people are now using different variations of basically the same messaging, which is also getting them sued. So representing that a product that is not just something that was pulled right out of the earth and <laughs> just delivered in its natural form is natural comes with risk. The type of litigation specifically has been focused on products that have highly processed ingredients. So used to be products that had high fructose corn syrup might have said they were all natural. A lot of those got sued, so they don't do that anymore. But maybe they're made with ingredients that are derived from genetic engineering, GMO and green yet. Those have been the subject of lawsuits. Or they have coloring in them, which even if it comes from a natural source, is not natural. Or the kind of latest version of this is they may have things in them that is that they're not intentionally adding, like chemicals called PFAS, which have been detected in almost everything. They're ubiquitous in the environment. And so trace contaminants like that are that are not natural contaminants on a product that is representing itself as natural, even though the manufacturer or the brand owner may not be aware that they are there. Plaintiff's lawyers are going out and testing products for things like this, um, or pesticides, traces of pesticides in products. So those are all examples. It remains an area that is very risky for a brand to position itself as all natural or nothing artificial, you know, different variations of that kind of claim. What are some of the common ones you'd see if people say nothing artificial or no artificial flavors, stuff like that? Yeah. So that's another version of this, too. Um, no artificial flavors, no artificial preservatives. There are a lot of lawsuits about products that have certain ingredients like citric acid, malic acid, sorbic acid. These are ingredients that can be used for their effect on acidity regulation. They're not necessarily there to affect the flavor, but the plaintiff's lawyers have argued that they do have an impact on flavor. And therefore, if you're saying that the product has no artificial flavoring in it, that's not true. They do have an effect on shelf life. And so if you're saying that it has no artificial preservatives, that's not true. And so what about representations that people do make about you know flavor and key ingredients? What are the stuff you're seeing in that area? Yeah. So this is an area where there's been increasing success on the defense side with motions to dismiss, mostly because there is one plaintiff's lawyer who has been prolific in filing lawsuits on the issue of products that represent that they have a flavor and are getting that flavor not only from the named ingredient. So, for example, lemon flavor cookies. They may have some amount of lemon or a lemon oil in them, but they also have a natural flavor in them that is supplementing that lemon taste. And there were tons of these lawsuits around vanilla flavored product. And it's been expanded beyond that to things like fudge. Is it really fudge because it doesn't have butter in it? It's just tons of these lawsuits. More and more of them are getting dismissed, but not all of them are getting dismissed. And so it is something to be very careful about of considering whether you are making representations that a product has more of an ingredient that consumers will view as desirable than it really does. So that's one version of this. Then there's another, which is what I consider to be really sort of hyper-technical, holding brands to the rules around flavor labeling. So there is a very difficult to understand regulation, FDA regulation, around how you describe 
the characterizing flavor of a food or beverage product and what language you need to use if you are using a flavoring ingredient to provide all or some of that flavoring. And there's a set of plaintiff's lawyers who are out there really just looking for violations of this rule and arguing that violation is deceptive. And under California law, it doesn't even necessarily have to be deceptive. Under California law, there is a basis for suing just for FDA violations as a form of consumer protection, even though the federal food and drug law does not allow a proper right of action. Got it. Okay. I remember reading about one kind of wacky lawsuit from back in the day that was against Red Bull that was about somebody sued them saying that Red Bull did not actually. It's in going wing. I know. I mean, come on. I thought, yeah, we all, of course, when it says Red Bull gives you wings, assume that it will sprout wings out of your back and go and perform miracles. But I don't, yeah, I don't know if it was only about that or if it also was kind of related to just the overall performance or like an energy or whatever that people thought you would get from it. But I believe that may be why now the wings has two eyes in it. So it's like, okay, not <laughs> literal wings. And now if you somehow sprout wings with two eyes, then I guess that's just a bonus. Yeah. Well, so there is a concept of the reasonable consumer in this type of litigation. For the most part, the courts will find that the claim is good enough that at least potentially a reasonable consumer could be deceived. But occasionally, it's just so ridiculous that the court will find early on in the litigation that as a matter of law, no reasonable consumer could be deceived. There was a case like this at Fruit Loops where could anyone actually think they contain fruit? So that's there's I might, some I might in- deny that one. Like Fruit Loops? Like, yeah, maybe there should be at least some fruit. I don't think it's just a loop of fruit, but yeah. So, okay, well, that's good to know. Yeah, what about like some of the health claims that you see? Like the whole world is moving towards, you know, functional ingredients and lion's mane and all of these other things and people looking for food to give them food as medicine and health benefits. Where are the claims that you see around that? Yeah. So the functional claims, you don't see as many lawsuits around functional claims. There's definitely the potential for that. And there are some, and they might focus more on products like weight loss products. But there's a a case right now that's working its way through the courts about Boost, a nutritional beverage that's positioned for people with diabetes and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is how that case can move forward. And the allegation there is the plaintiffs say they expected the product to actually improve their blood sugar levels. And Nestle says, we don't say that. We just say it helps you to manage your blood sugar because you don't have spikes in blood sugar. And so there's room for disagreement. My takeaway from it is the plaintiffs did a good enough job with their complaint that that case can move forward and it's being you know, really aggressive fought. But so here and there, you'll see things about actual representations about functional benefits where the plaintiff's lawyers maybe know enough about the science to say there's no way you can substantiate that. And so they'll go after those. But more what you see is these non-specific kind of good for you representations getting challenged. And there's a lot of that, right? In the marketplace, there's a ton of marketing that products are better in some way from a health perspective than whatever the traditional product is that they're offering themselves as an alternative to. And yet, if they have a lot of sugar, a lot is kind of a vague term, but a relatively high amount of added sugar, 
and are being positioned as good for you in some way, that has been a hot area of litigation. And what's interesting about this kind of case is it may not even be a, like one claim that's at issue. It's really the overall positioning of the product. So the plaintiff's lawyers will point to not just one claim, but if you look at the label, it might have nutrient content claims that say that has high protein or it points out certain good ingredients that it has, whole grains, and use language like nutritious. And when you put it all together, the net takeaway of that is this is good for you. And yet, if you look in the nutrition facts panel and find that it has a significant amount of added sugar, that is a risky way to position that product. Okay, got it. What about sustainability and environmental type claims? And there's more and more of this kind of claim, right? So it's obviously an, an issue that is emerging in consumers' minds as people are becoming more focused on the environment and understandably something that a brand would want to be able to say about itself if it's actually trying to do something better in the way that it sources its ingredients or you know, in its supply chain and in the way it manufactures and packaging. You have to be careful because language like sustainable is so broad. The Federal Trade Commission has its green guides that about different kinds of environmental claims. That's in the process of being updated and will hopefully provide some good guidance to brand owners and marketers. But the warning in there now is a claim like sustainable or sort of these broad environmental benefit claims can have so many different interpretations by consumers that it's impossible to know how to substantiate all of those, or it would be impossible to substantiate all of those. And therefore, it's risky. So what you can do and should do is say exactly what you mean and what you can support. So qualify those kinds of claims. If your product is sustainable because of agricultural methods that are used help to conserve water and you can back that up, we'll narrow your claim to that or at least put it in context where consumers will understand you're not making a representation about your entire supply and distribution chain of your product. So that's the kind of consideration that you need to give to that. And another version of it is environmental um, animal welfare claims. So for products that use animal-derived ingredients, it's important to be really careful about what you say and about how the animals are treated. Because again, there can be really different understandings. These aren't terms that are defined in regulations like humane, even terms like free range and pasture raised. And there are different industry standards. There are certification standards and there are people who may disagree with those standards. And so even brands that have certifications have been sued for the, on the basis that the certification isn't as strong as the brand is representing it to be. The animals aren't treated as well, it is not as sustainable or humane as they are representing. Got it. Okay. And then what about slack fill? You know, that like space in the chip bag that is not actually chips, that's just a lot of air. What do you see there? Right. So this is always somewhat of a risk. There are defenses. So the air in the chips, if it's there for a purpose, which is to keep all the chips from crumbling, then that's a defense to that. Where brands can get in trouble is especially when they change their packaging and reduce the contents. And even though the net may update what it says, the net content, if you haven't changed the package size especially, that is the potential to cause consumer confusion and deception. They may not look that closely at it. They're used to buying a product. It now has less than it used to have. And so that would be a risky move. But Slack fills the idea basically that consumers are getting less of the product than they may expect. 
And that can be because of the size of the packaging compared to its contents. It's why you'll see fill levels marked more and more on packages where the contents can settle so that you can't see through the packaging. You can see the line that you should expect the pasta to be at when you open the box, that kind of thing. But it's especially risky when you make a change to the content. And if you do have a defense like that, whether it's one of these claims or the reason that you need the slack in the product, I've heard some lawyers recommend put the research that you have in some kind of dossier, like a live Google Doc. So you can keep all of your research there and the reasoning and rationale where if you do get challenged on something, then you'll have it there and people can see that you've had that research ongoing, that your team was diligent about it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a good idea in general. If there's something that is you expect to be called out on, I mean, first of all, substantiation, you should always have substantiation for claims you're making. But if there's things that potentially that are litigation risk, there is that opportunity in those initial conversations and trying to settle a case early or to dispense of it, that if you have a really strong defense and you have it at your fingertips ready to go to say, nope, you're wrong, then that would be great to be able to share that with the plaintiff's lawyers and show them that it's not a case worth pursuing. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned PFAS before. Anything more in kind of that area, like heavy metals, especially Prop 65 that you think brands yeah. know about? Right. So we've been talking mostly about consumer protection cases that are brought under Deceptive Trade Practices Act, where the allegation is that the labeling is false or misleading. Prop 65 is its own separate law in California and is a huge litigation risk for anyone who sells a product in California that might have a chemical on the Prop 65 list. It's its own cause of action, incentivizes lawyers to bring these kinds of cases because it has what's called a bounty hunter provision. And the biggest areas are products that come from natural ingredients that could have elevated levels of heavy metals. So like spices are really big target because they will naturally, as the plants are growing, take up lead or chocolate, lead and cadmium. Arsenic is another one. And these are chemicals that can occur naturally in the environment. But the level at which a warning is required is very low, especially for lead. And so if the brand didn't provide a warning on the product, they can get sued. Or if they are too small, which a lot of brands think that I don't need to worry about Prop 65, because I have fewer than 10 employees and I've heard that there's an exemption. That is true. But if you do business with a larger retailer or distributors in California, that retailer can then get sued because the product didn't have a warning. And all of the big retailers, if you look closely at the terms that you sign when you onboard with them, they require that you are warranting that your product is complying with Prop 65 and that you are indemnifying them if they get sued because you failed to give a warning. Yeah, that's a scary reminder that sometimes these suits can go after one of your retailers as well. Like I remember seeing the suit filed or the, I don't know, in the news anyways against Feel Free, which has Kratom in it. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But then they got sued as well as 7-Eleven for selling it without, I think, giving adequate information about the ingredient. So, and for anybody who wants to learn more about Prop 65, there is so much info to go through. We actually did a great webinar on that separately with Rohit Sapna from Keller Heckman, and that's available 
on our Vimeo page, which is vimeo.com slash startup CPG. Look way back in the archives and it's there. And he gave a really good overview. If you, for anyone who lives here in California, you're pretty familiar with at least seeing the words Prop 65, because anytime you walk into a building or look at almost anything, there's a Prop 65 warning there that says, you know, potential cancerous materials are here. Just always kind of be aware of everything. But people outside of California won't be as familiar with that. But if you sell a product that is sold in California, that will apply to you. So really good to understand. And if you have any potential ingredients that could violate Prop 65 and get you in trouble, good to check out that webinar. It was a doozy. So the next one I would love to touch on is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that is one that I've that brands have been getting in hot water for a little bit more lately. What are you seeing there? Yeah, so I've had a couple clients deal with this. There are a few firms, mostly in California and New York, although I've heard that it's starting to pop up in some other states as well, that have kind of pioneered this type of litigation based on some court decisions. And there are mixed decisions around the country, but there are some that find that a website, at least if it's an e-commerce website, are places of public accommodation subject to civil rights laws. So there's the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act. There are also state counterparts under California law. New York has its own state statute. New York City has its own law. And so these claims are being filed on behalf of visually impaired consumers who allege that they tried to purchase a product through a website and were unsuccessful or had challenges in doing so because their screen reader device that they use was unable to successfully navigate the website based on its coding. And there are so many of these being brought. And uh, so the two that I've dealt with have, were both in New York. I'm a New York lawyer. And it's, again, it's the same sort of thing. The One of the ones I dealt with was a class action. The other one was just brought up on behalf of the plaintiff. The state law authorizes attorney's fees for the plaintiff if they were to prevail and has a um, statutory award damages. So the actual damage amount at issue is only $500, but potentially the attorney fee recovery could be much higher. So that's where the value is for them, but they're filing dozens and dozens of these all the time. <laughs> And so it's definitely something to watch out for as more brands have their own Shopify pages and you know are doing more direct to consumer through their own website. Um, then that's contributing to it. And also it's been court rulings that are contributing to this and finding that a website is a place of public accommodation and therefore this law applies, whereas historically we've only seen it as applicable to brick and mortar settings. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And, you know, I think one of the challenges there is I know brands who are talking about it, like, yeah, we want to make sure that we are ADA compliant, but we're actually not completely sure how. Like, we think we've followed them, but, you know, it's not always so clear. And we did the stuff on our website, but like it could change or from the research that I've done and from talking to brands, it seemed like people were settling on. I mean, you can ask somebody to do a check for you, but if you update your website, that could change. And then there is kind of an always on client service that you can subscribe to that'll kind of keep checking your website. One thing that I liked, I saw some brands just putting at the bottom, like, by the way, if you have any troubles with this website whatsoever, please call this phone number and we will help you. So maybe that's a, I don't, is that something that can be effective? I think it certainly helps, right? So there at least gives you the argument, especially to have an alternate way for somebody to order, which means probably needing to have a phone number that is staffed because uh, it needs to be comparable to ordering through the website. It at least gives you a defense. If that's all you can do, then have that. 
some other way for people to contact you that is visible in the place where you would order and not like buried in some link at the bottom of your website. That can help. There are these services, and I can't vouch for any of them, and I am by no means a tech expert for a website developer, but service like Accessibility, they claim that this add-on to your website makes it compliant, makes it function at the same level as if you changed all the underlying coding. And there are website, the website content accessibility guidelines that are the industry standard. Ideally, Everyone could afford to hire a web developer that was really familiar with those guidelines and do the underlying. But I've heard that's very expensive. So I don't know how practical that is. And it is also a defense that something is prohibitively expensive to comply or it would be it would make the website not function in the same way. Again, this isn't really about defenses, right? For smaller brands, that's not what we're really talking about. This is, again, about how much are you going to settle this for? But preventatively, I think it's a good idea to offer alternative ways for people to order, look into those services, at least find out what it would cost to do the coding in a way that was compliant. But my understanding is that the plaintiff's lawyers are searching for these cases by testing out websites with screen readers and where they encounter problems. They then have the plaintiff go and try to order and because they need to be able to allege the plaintiff tried to order the product. And so if the overlay type of solution does in fact make the site compatible with screen readers, then that should be protective. And what would happen if it was like maybe your site had a glitch one day and it was out of compliance or something, but in general it is and they just happen to be shopping on that day? Could they still be asking you for a pretty significant damage in that kind of an instance, even if, you know, that's not the way it's actually supposed to happen? Yeah. I mean, so again, it's not really about damages. It's about the kids that are seeking injunctive relief plus attorney's fees. I mean, potentially if it's a class action, they're seeking damages if the state statute authorizes. So it's $500 under New York law if it was a class action on behalf of all the consumers who were unable to, to purchase through the product, there would be a significant dollar amount. But basically, these are about injunctive relief plus attorney's fees. So if you were able to show like, no, that's impossible. There might have been an issue one day with our website, but our website is actually compliant. And the way to do that is with an audit. So there are services you can hire to do a manual audit. That's what you would want to have is somebody who actually manually goes through your site rather than just having it screened by a computer to prove that it's compliant. That will go a long way towards at least reducing significantly the settlement demand. Okay, got it. And are there any other areas that I missed or that you think it's important for brands to be aware of at the early stage? Yeah, I mean, so I would just say we've been talking about kind of the kinds of cases that are sort of an industry for certain segments of the plaintiff's bar. There are always the actual disputes, <laughs> right? There's contract disputes. There are potentially labeling or advertising type litigation by somebody who's actually caught you saying something that's not true. So it kind of never ceases to amaze me that people get really in love with their messaging and maybe fail to see, like they know what it means to them, but they might fail to see other possible interpretations they're putting out in a way that an outsider, a lawyer or somebody else might look at it and say, but have you considered this message? And is that true? 
because it happens all the time. People send me their labels to review and I'll point something out. Like, oh, we didn't see it. We don't mean that. And it doesn't matter what you intended. If it's a reasonable interpretation that a consumer could take away, you could get sued for it. So it's just in general, you need to be kind of stepping back, thinking about overall the message you're trying to put across to consumers. And is that a truthful message and one you can support? Okay. And you obviously have to be aware of what's on your label. Maybe that's going to be the thing you need to focus on first, but then also holistically, like what's on your website and what are the claims or the ways you talk about your product there and your email marketing and on your social media. How does all of this extend to, let's say you're working with an influencer or some kind of an affiliate that probably, let's say that's contracted by you in some way. And, you know, a lot of times they might be doing something that feels really organic to them, but they might say something in a way that, you know, you couldn't say that. They obviously, as a non-industry person who hasn't gone through the regulatory checks that you have, might not really know they shouldn't say it exactly that way. What's the level of liability you could have in that kind of a... Well, you can. So first of all, my what I tell people to do is have guidelines, right? So this applies to your own marketing team. It applies to influencers that you work with. Anyone who's going to be out there promoting your product needs to know what are the safe grounds that we can talk about and what do we need to stay. And that should be informed by regulatory compliance. It should be informed by litigation risk and informed by what you can actually substantiate, right? So those guidelines should be out there. When it comes to influencers or even consumers who are reviewing your product, where you get in the most trouble is if you've endorsed their message in some way, right? So an influencer, you're very likely to be doing this because you are going to help in promoting what the influencer is putting out. If it's a consumer review, let's say they post a review on Amazon, on your website, if you are even liking a message that they post on your social media or you are republishing a review they put and it says something about your product that you yourself cannot say, that is now your message and can get you in trouble. All right. So lots of good watch outs there. I'm sorry to everybody for all of the scary stuff that we are just previewing that can happen to your brand, but hopefully... You guys will do all of the great checks ahead of time and not face some of these unpleasant suits and letters that you can get from people. So, Lauren, maybe just like more you're a question for you as you know, a human out there in the world, which is I think we could all agree that there are a lot of suits that would have merit that we're all grateful for somebody fighting for consumers rights like a fast food chain serves you chicken, but it's not chicken. It's something else like, yeah, we don't want that. Like, hopefully someone's out there holding their toes to the fire and keeping them honest, whereas there are other things, let's say maybe that you know, not actually growing wings from your back, like, okay, maybe that's a little over the line. Like you as a consumer, let's say, where do you see the line? You know, if you're thinking about the injustices that you want people to fight for you on. So me personally, and I get, you know, we started this talking about what got me interested in CPG and food industry specifically. And that is that there actually are a lot of problems with our food system. And so where Companies are overreaching and positioning themselves in a way as being beneficial to the environment, treating animals well. If they're really not doing any more than everyone else, but it's just kind of for marketing, that personally bothers me. But what I don't like is when there are brands, and there are many of them, that actually are trying to do good. And they are doing things differently, but maybe there's more that could have been done, right? Or it's kind of the perfect is the enemy of the good. And so that also offends me that too, that I think companies get punished 
when they are actually trying to do good, but maybe their language was just not as careful as it could be. And then they'll fall into this type of lawsuit too. Okay. Got it. Thank you very much, Lauren. The advice that you're giving here, I think is really, really helpful. Probably there are a lot of brands out there that will hear this and realize there are some things that they need to fix up and, you know, hopefully avoid getting into some of these scenarios that can really be a nightmare. So thank you so much for sharing your years and years of legal experience with the community and also just for being so active on our Startup CPG Slack channel to connect with brands that way. So in general, Lauren, I assume it's okay if brands have a question about one of these areas or they have a potential issue if they reach out to you, if they want to chat with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, sure. So I am in the Startup CPG Slack community. So you can message me there. My email is lauren at handelfoodlaw.com. Just send me an email. You can find me on LinkedIn too. Perfect. All right. And probably you're willing to just kind of have initial consultations with brands or whatever just to hear what the issue is and just help them think about what the steps could be or what could be involved. Absolutely. Yep. Always happy to chat, see if we can help in some way. And if not, I will very honestly say that. <laughs> so yeah, feel free to reach out. All right. Lauren, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you as always. And we will see all of you on the Slack. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast today, it would really help us out if you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am Daniel Scharf. I'm the host and founder of Startup CPG. Please feel free to reach out or add me on LinkedIn. If you're a potential sponsor that would like to appear on the podcast, please email partnerships at startupcpg.com. And reminder to all of you out there, we would love to have you join the community. You can sign up at our website, startupcpg.com, to learn about our webinars, events, and Slack channel. If you enjoyed today's music, you can check out my band. It's the Super Fantastics on Spotify Music. On behalf of the entire Startup CPG team, thank you so much for listening and your support. See you next time.